And we are back for another episode of Watch If You Dare, the spoopiest podcast on the whole block. And this week we are going to be discussing a newer horror movie. We will get to that in just a second. In the meantime, Derek, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. And actually, this was a, a nice change of pace from the last horror movie. I, I haven't really had anything else going on this week, so that's why I'm just talking about the movie. I have uh, been indulging in some newer movies as well. I checked out Ghost Stories, which was pretty fun. Um, I also caught up on Castle Rock, which has been pretty solid so far, and I've been enjoying it. Um, maybe we'll eventually get around to covering some short-form TV shows one of these days. Um, beyond that, I have also been reading uh, two new comics that are both horror-related. Uh, Cold Spots from Image Comics was That's very a good one. solid. Yep. Um, I definitely enjoyed the atmosphere and the look and feel of it. Um, the other one I checked out was Bone Parish by Cullen Bunn. Another good one. He wrote the fantastic Hero County series for Dark Horse over the last few years, which has become one of my most favorite new comics. It kind of takes a lot of what Hellboy is doing, where, you know, there are monsters, but not all the monsters are bad. A lot of the monsters are your friends, and you shouldn't necessarily be scared of them. Um, it's taking a lot of that and mixing it with... A lot of the old-timey, oh brother, where art thou, style, rural America, spiritualism, and superstition. So I really, really dig that series. And the new series, Bone Parish, is actually set in New Orleans. The premise is that there is a new street drug where once you take it, you can literally, like, see and interact with the dead that are around you. So that is kind of the initial starting point. But the first issue is really solid. The world building and it's great. And I'm excited to see where it goes from there. Well, and it's funny that you mention Cold Spots, Harrow County, Bone Parish. They are all written by Colin Bunn. And Colin Bunn is actually a fantastic horror comic writer in general. I uh, checked out another miniseries. I think it was five issues long called The Unsound that Boom was putting out. Also a really solid, trippy, psychological horror comic and it's about this nurse who starts working at uh, basically in an insane asylum um like on a psychological or psychiatric floor and just crazy crazy shit starts happening a comic that actually i'm i'm glad you brought up comics because i have been reading a lot of comics this week because i have a big stack i'm trying to catch up on one of my favorite newer comics also horror related is this comic called ice cream man that's being put out by Image, and it's being written by W. Maxwell Prince. It's fantastic. It's kind of like these one-shot tales, all taking place centered around the same town with this kind of entity figure who is an ice cream man. He's wrapped up in all these stories in ways, and it's not really explained yet, like if he's a demon or something like that, or just this entity that's kind of infecting all these people's lives i think there's been about six or seven issues i want to say they definitely have one trade out already and the story is starting to become there there, there is a, like an overlapping storyline that's starting to form uh it's still doing little like one-shot tales but they there are hints that there's something greater going on so i highly highly recommend it the art and it is just as good as the writing so yeah if, if you're looking for something spooky to read there's plenty of good comics out there so i figure 
you know, every episode we can kind of talk about what else we've been consuming, um, especially things that are maybe horror or, you know, related to the genre in a sideways kind of way. I think every episode two, let's give them a little bit of background for each of us. Um, you know, we talked last time about what we are afraid of and that both of us, you know, have very different kind of fears and phobias and things that get under our skin and that certainly affects how we react to certain movies. So I'll I'll kick it off and just kind of give y'all a little bit of background. One of my biggest fears and phobias and this is a completely irrational one, but it's there is a legit word for it. I am terrified of dark water. Like just the idea of being in like dark soupy swampy water either where you can't stand or like just up to your chest or up to your neck is terrifying to me because you don't know what's around you you don't know what like awful things are just like in your presence or nearby or watching you at any given moment there's just a huge sense of unease there i am totally fine swimming in like the ocean or the gulf for instance that doesn't really bother me at all even the gulf you know when it's kind of dirty and murky which it usually kind of is but the idea of swimming in like louisiana swamp where there's a bunch of algae all over the top of the water (laughs) nope no thanks it's an irrational fear i know it's an irrational fear because how often do i actually like put myself in that situation but that's something that i'm completely and utterly terrified by I think that fear, though, is more common than you give it credit because I even it's kind of funny you mention it because I've been watching some game streams lately, mainly by the Team Four Star guys, who they're they're basically a comedy group that um, redubs like anime, specifically Dragon Ball Z, and they they cut out a lot of the bullshit and make it a lot more comical. But I've been checking out their gaming channel because the guys are actually just really cool to listen to and watch them play through games, and one of them is deathly afraid of dark waters and deep water in general to the point where when they're playing a game where you have to go underwater, he has to look away from the screen. Like you can hear him like verbally. You can tell he is extremely uncomfortable. The few times that they're also kind of on the screen, like, you know how the Twitch platforms allows you to see the people on the couch as they're playing through the game. Sometimes you can see him sometimes squirm. Um, So I I think it's it's a it's a fear that I think a lot of people share. I I think our buddy uh, Nowacki, shout out to him. He also has a fear of dark waters or not being able to see your feet even when you're in the water. So I I wouldn't say it's that irrational. And specifically, I just Googled it. The word for it is hydroscourophobia. Um, That is specifically the fear of deep, dark water. Um, That is in contrast to thalassophobia, which is just the fear of, like, the sea or bodies of water in general. Hydroscourophobia is specifically what my uh my trigger point is i guess how about you derek so i have a way more irrational fear than you do i have a death fear of fucking wasps and hornets i don't know what it is because bees don't bother me i could see bees and like yeah obviously if there's a swarm of bees or a beehive i'm not going to go near it or i'm going to run away from it if i'm being attacked same thing with like spiders if there's a spider on me i'm going to get it off of me but i'm not going to flip out about it if there is a wasp and I know it's in the house, I will be tempted to not enter the house unless I have bugs like wasp spray in my hand or someone else is going in there to either get it out or kill it. One of the last times a wasp got into the house, it was in the hallway and I had I had wasp spray with me. 
The thing was in the light, so I was ready. I was aiming the wasp spray, ready to kill it. As I started, as the spray started coming out, the thing fucking flew and like flew towards me, and I almost twisted my ankle. No <laughs> joke. Like I fell over myself trying to run away because some of the spray like leaked on the floor, so the floor was slippery, and I fell over myself, almost twisted my ankle. Like I, for a second, I thought I was like I, I I hobbled into the main room and had to check my ankle to make sure I could still put weight on it and everything. Eventually, I did get the motherfucker, but for but it's it's stuff like that, and I don't know where it came from. I think when I was like two or three years old, I want to say maybe I think I stuck my hand into a bush one and got stung by one, and ever since then, it's kind of just stuck with me. Uh, again, I don't know what it is. I've been stung by bees, and that again, it doesn't bother me whatsoever. But if it's a wasp or a hornet, I'm a coward. Like I, I turn into a major coward. And there's also a phobia for this one. Uh, specifically, this one I think is just persistent fear of wasps. I'm probably gonna butcher this, but it's uh, it, I think it's phexophobia. Um, it's S P H E K S O P H O. B I A. Obviously, phobus is the Greek god of fear, so they attach all these phobia, uh, all these words to these phobias for every specific thing. But yeah, that's that's my big irrational fear: wasps and hornets. Oh yeah, that's a little more insight into our psyches um, as far as what makes us tick. And again, like these are, you know, things that are completely different between the two of us, but you know that's what's fun about talking about these movies because they're all going to be playing on different fears and phobias and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't that's ultimately the purpose of this podcast is to maybe clue people in around hey you know if this bothers you maybe this is not the movie for you or if you want to like confront it here you go this is it another irrational fear i just thought of too is a fear of flying i hate airplanes i hate getting on them i hate flying I don't know what it is. Maybe it's it goes back to that, like I covered in the first episode of why horror movies bother me, but then other horror-related things and other medias mediums don't bother me. I guess it's a loss of control. Like I'm, you're literally in a, a pressurized metal tube flying through the air, thousands of feet in the air, and your your life is literally in the hands of the pilots. So I guess maybe that's why I'm so afraid of it. I don't know. It's interesting how these phobias kind of... Because I used to not be afraid of flying in an airplane. This is a more recent phobia. I've always been afraid of wasps and hornets. That's just been a lifelong fear. But fear of flying has been one that's kind of popped up in the last decade, I want to say. And there's been no rhyme or reason as to why, but there you go. I hate flying as well, but for completely different reasons. Um, I am a big and tall guy, so obviously, you know, there's nothing you can do to make me comfortable on a plane. Even if I do kind of, you know, roll the magic dice and get a exit row seat, you know, it's, it's the this whole situation's just still not at all pleasant. Um, I also just hate the hassle of being in an airport and I hate just all the tedium that goes along with going through security and dealing with crowds of people. Um, crowds of people don't bother me, but just, like, everybody running around like a chicken with their head cut off is aggravating. What actually does bother me is I am claustrophobic, which we will talk about at a later time. Same thing, being in a pressurized metal tube where I can't really breathe well because there's not a lot of airflow and just, nope, don't like it. So it, it's weird because being in a car doesn't bother me, but being in an airplane is a whole different situation. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the fact that it's hard to breathe. That's that's a lot of claustrophobia for me is just, you know, not being able to breathe, not being comfortable at all. So Okay, well, the movie that we're going to talk about today is a recent one. Um, it is 
from 2014. It is It Follows. Um, so we are going to give a brief synopsis and discuss plot points, and then we are going to kind of, you know, give you our our spoop meter. Let's talk about, you know, why the movie's effective, what it preys on, kind of give you our thoughts. So let's get started. And like we mentioned in the first episode, we'll probably be pretty open with spoilers. So just FYI going into it. Yeah, at this point, you know, being our second episode, I think we just need to kind of set the precedent going forward that we are always going to be talking about movies in terms of spoilers. If you are interested in watching the movie, you know, maybe we can give you a little bit of a spoop meter up front. But from there, you know, obviously make your mind up, go watch it, and then we can you know, you can join the discussion with us and talk about it. Well, and on that note, I'll, I'll, I'll just say then, like, for instance, for It Follows, me being the coward of the group when it comes to horror movies, It Follows, just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is a very, I don't want to say easy movie to watch because it is disturbing and there are very, it's very creepy. It's a very creepy vibe to it. Very different than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre made you feel uneasy with how grime, like the muck, the grime of, of, of the feel of it. This one is more almost along the lines of psychological, supernatural. It, it's kind of a it's a kind of a ghost movie in some ways. As far as movies like that go, it's pretty tame. I was able to get through it. I only had maybe two or three major jump scares. And even those were not necessarily jump scares to the point where, like, I was like, oh, holy shit. It was more just like, oh, that's creepy. It never never bothered me. I will say the movie did sit with me for a little while. I had a little bit of trouble sleeping when that night after I watched it. But otherwise, it's a damn good movie in general. It's, again, very different than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's very art house, kind of hipsterish even. But it's very art horror kind of along along the same lines of a lot of modern horror movies that we're seeing now. Um, It's part of that whole Netflix kind of... It's like a Netflix classic. It'll probably go down in a decade or two as a Netflix classic movie. The movie also deals with fairly intense themes of voyeurism. Um, It also deals with a lot of the psychological trauma that comes along with, you know, sex and sexual encounters. So there is some disturbing, you know, very real elements to it, despite the supernatural hook. That's kind of what you should expect going into this movie, uh, before we really kind of start talking the plot and spoilers and everything else. Um, So again, you know, if this is something that you've kind of looked at for a while and maybe thought about, you know, I think both of us can say, you know, there are some disturbing elements to this movie. There are a couple of mild shocks, but nothing that is overt. Um, there is mild gore in the movie, but not really anything massively ridiculous or extensive. That being said, you know, the movie has a lot of atmosphere, so be prepared to, you know, be on edge for the duration of the movie. Yeah, at- atmospheric is a good way to describe it. I'm glad you brought that up. Real quick, as far as jump scares go, I think I'd give it like a three or four out of ten. It's really not that intense. The creep factor is definitely there. It is. It maintains, like Mansfield was saying, a creepy on-edge vibe through most of the movie. But as a movie, I would give it like a solid 8.5 out of 10, 8 out of 10. It's, it's just a 
well-shot movie for the most part well acted we'll get into it once we I'll, I'll touch more into that once we actually dig into the movie we can go ahead and get started we'll give you a brief synopsis and kind of walk through it uh the movie opens i guess you would say in media res i feel like it's in media res um but it starts in a neighborhood and we see a girl run out of her house and she's clearly disturbed by something but we don't know what you get the impression that you know, she was maybe in the middle of getting ready to go out for the night because she's kind of half-dressed. But the camera pans around the neighborhood and follows her. And eventually she hops in her car and speeds off. And then we see her alone, kind of on a beachy shoreline. She gets a call from her dad, just trying to find out, like, where she went, what happened. And she basically just says, you know, I'm sorry, I love you. And then we cut to a shot of her dead. And when I say dead, I mean, like, leg broken in half backwards on the beach. And that's probably the most shocking gore moment that you really see in this in this movie right off the top. Yeah, and I, I want to touch on these opening moments for a little bit, because this movie, this these these opening moments are very well done in setting, setting what this movie is all about. First off, right at the bat, the neighborhood, it looks like it was shot to be a homage of, like, the original Halloween like, this looks like almost the same damn neighborhood that Jamie Lee Curtis was in in, in the original Halloween movie. And her the that character's name is Anne. When she's kind of freaking out at one point, the camera does a good job of almost acting like this, the presence, whatever is after her. Um, and one of the shots, it's like slowly creeping towards her as she's freaking out more. And the whole time, you don't see anything. It's almost like you are the monster chasing her, whatever you are, whatever it is. That I don't want to say it's a jump scare, like when it jumps from her on the beach at night, then it it comes, it, it shows the morning on the beach and shows her dead body. It's not quite a jump scare, but it is a little startling with because it is such an unnatural way to die. The body is very positioned, very weirdly, in that I think it's her right leg is like bent back. Like when I say it's bent backwards, it's completely bent backwards. There's a little bit of gore just where the knee was or wherever, like at that unnatural bending. It's almost like the leg was almost split in half, but it's it's not extremely bloody either. And that's definitely like, again, if we're going to talk about fears and why this stuff works, that moment is like, that's kind of one that I was in theaters watching it and just went, ooh, too, because you're limbs and joints aren't supposed to have been that way right so like that's definitely something where if you have any kind of body fears um you know it's it's different than just seeing like a chopped off leg where there's just kind of a bloody stump you can feel it it's very visceral and that's why that moment works so well because it's not just like seeing a bloody stump of her leg it's just knowing like oh your leg's not supposed to work that way that moment is very effective to immediately starting this movie off with a bang other thing i will say too the soundtrack in this movie is fantastic absolutely
This is one of my favorite soundtracks from the last few years. Um, it was by Disasterpiece, and they were typically known for doing video game soundtracks. Um, so this was a very different thing for them all said and done, but God, this soundtrack is so good. It's very much a throwback to synthy Carpenter stuff. Um, there are definitely some elements of, you know, Italian giallo horror. Love the soundtrack. And this is definitely one of those movies that benefits very much from being played as loud as you possibly can. The rest of the audio mix is, you know, just kind of so-so, but the music really, really stands out. And it helps with a lot of the shock and atmosphere that goes on. So the soundtrack is fantastic and due, due to the soundtrack and then even just the little things like the cars and the backgrounds the technology like the tv sets this movie uh, operates a little bit on dream logic and that you you could still follow it it's not like total dream logic where you're like like it's a fucking david lynch film like it has a concise plot that you follow along but there is almost like this underlying thing that this is this is almost like taking place in a nightmare or a dream because it's hard to tell when this movie actually takes place. It's implied that it's taking place in modern times, like 2014, 2015. One of the characters has like this little reader. Uh, it's almost like a little nook that she she reads from throughout the movie. And then the the, the Anne, Annie, the, the girl who was killed in the beginning, she got a call from her dad on her cell phone. But then you have the soundtrack and then all the other technology in the movie is like straight out of the fucking 70s, 80s horror movie. Again, I I just saw homages to the old school slashers all over the place. Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween specifically. So let's let's talk about that for a second, because that's honestly like that's my biggest beef with this movie. Um, And you sent me a message about it, you know, while you were watching it. Like, what year is this movie set? I really dig this movie. I think it's well made for the most part. I think it's very atmospheric, and it's definitely, like, one of the most unique and interesting ideas um, that I've seen in many, many years. That said, my biggest beef with this movie, biggest complaint, let's just get it out of the way, I really don't like the decisions that they made regarding trying to set this movie out of time, but massively failing to do so because of their choices of what technology to include and not include, and how that interacts with the story. So for instance, like Derek just mentioned, the character right at the beginning has a crappy little cell phone. You can't, I think it was like a flip phone even. It wasn't an even a modern cell phone. But literally nobody else over the course of the movie seems to have a cell phone. All of the featured vehicles in the movie, Jeff's car that's featured pretty heavily at the beginning, some of the other characters' cars toward the end of the movie, like the station wagon, all of those cars are dated. But then you literally see totally modern cars everywhere else. Anne's car right at the beginning is a like a Prius or something. Yeah. There are lots of moments where the characters are watching TV, but they're all these old-ass tube TVs, and they're all watching, like, old black-and-white horror and sci-fi stuff. I think they're watching, like, Killers from Space or Space Killers. I can't remember the name. It's the one with, like, the dude with, like, the bug eyes. The girl does have the weird, like, little clam-shaped ear eater, right? So that's that's another thing there that obviously we have devices similar to that, but that's a completely fake made-up device. And then, you know, from there, just, like, their clothing, the way that the houses are dressed up, the neighborhood, um, that stuff works, to me. The neighborhoods are identifiably old, but there's still something about them that is modern. Like, honestly, 
the whole neighborhood that Jay lives in is just Slidell. Yeah. It just completely reminds me of like Slidell, Louisiana. Yep. <laughs> That's what it all looks like. Or or it looks like a street in Metairie even, like Metairie, Louisiana as well. It, it's just one of those kind of like, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but it's like one of those na- like neighborhood streets that you've been on this street before. To me, it was like a street that I remember like trick-or-treating on as a kid. That's what it, the feelings that like I felt when, we, when I was watching this movie. Yeah, it's all those kind of lower brick, not quite ranch style, houses but they're very much like houses that were all built in the 50s and 60s and the neighborhoods definitely dated because of that but those neighborhoods still totally exist everywhere all the clothing that the characters wear is also fairly out of time in that they're just wearing jeans and t-shirts and you know there's nothing really identifiable like there's no logos on any of them at least that i'd noticed i think the problem is they try to make the movie a little bit out of time and kind of give it a little bit of that dream logic feel like you meant where you know there's nothing identifiable but they fail because they then put completely identifiable technology in the movie that you know like okay nobody has a tube tv anymore but where's everybody's cell phones nobody's using a computer but this girl has an e-reader and i think like that's that's a problem if you steer clear of the technology, I think you can make it work. Yeah, and I, I have to agree with you on this because it did take me out of the movie. This was one of the few things that, that took me out of the movie. Because I, I dig I dig having like a dreamlike quality to a movie. I, th- I That's one of those tropes that I just always enjoy seeing. But this movie never fully commits to it or it never fully commits to taking place in reality either. See, I didn't even notice any modern cars because... At, about halfway through the movie, I was just getting tired of... was surprisingly how much it bothered me Like whenever they were watching one of those tube TVs. Because I was, at first, I was just like, oh, they're watching at someone's house, at Jay's house, because you know it's a trendy thing to do. Or it's like, oh, look, it's a tube TV. We like watching old movies on it. But then every sing- other single fucking TV you see in this movie is an old school tube TV. And so I, I about halfway through the movie, I, I gave up on trying to figure out, does this take place in the 80s? Does this take place in 2015? After that, I just stopped paying attention to like the cars and everything else because all the cars to me look older. Then my other complaint too was kind of the acting. And it's very bittersweet for me because Micah Monroe, who plays the main character, Jay, she is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, she's great. She acts circles around everyone else. And that's my problem. Everyone else, specifically the male characters, are just the fucking worst. Yeah. And maybe that's on purpose. We'll get into like why. I, I think that might be on purpose as to... Because all the male characters suck, but for very different reasons. Yeah. I think it's on purpose, but we'll get into that once we, we dig in more. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of the male characters are maybe... And I mean, I don't have a problem with this because it's the way the story works. I think the male characters are kind of written to be that way to a degree. So they're just kind of playing to the writing. In general, like I, I actually think that the acting in this movie is fairly strong. I just don't feel like you are meant to like all the characters. Like, I really don't like the male characters in this for, you know, different reasons that we'll talk about. But I think the performances are actually pretty solid. I really do like Micah Monroe a lot. Um, she is also fantastic in The Guest, which, that movie's interesting, but I don't know that that's a movie that we'll talk about, because I don't really consider it to be straight horror. Um, as much as people branded that movie as, oh, it's a mix of Halloween and Terminator, I, it's a thriller, it's fun, it's more of an action movie to me. Um, but she's really great in that one. I also really do like Olivia Lucardi as the friend Yara, with the weird e-reader thing. She's 
cute and endearing, and I liked her a lot in this most recent season of Channel Zero on Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, I didn't know she was in that. Um, she's one of the major characters in this season, and she's fun in that. So from there, we actually go to our main character, Jay, played by Micah Monroe. One thing I do like a lot is how they focus on a lot of the mundane things that the characters do. Um, because it really kind of gives you a sense of not only like place, you know, they're in this small town, you kind of get the sense that they're all kind of bored and tired and they're all kind of afraid of being stuck in this small town ultimately. But I like a lot of the mundane things that you see them doing, you know, just the way that she just goes and gets in this pool for like 10 minutes just to kind of hang out because she's clearly just bored, you know, and just kind of hanging out in the pool not really doing anything looking at the ants and looking at the leaves well another interesting thing on that point too is and this again kind of ties into when does this take place their age is kind of up in the air too because it's implied that they're they're college students or at least they're of that age of of being in college but it is very much almost like a teenage wasteland feel to it there's always this current of depression under the movie of but but the Depression in the sense that Tula was saying of just sheer boredom. We're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. And the mundane is kind of like what keeps us going, basically. Yeah, and I think that's also, like, interesting. If we're going to talk about fears and, like, why this movie works, like, I think that's part of it is... You know, a lot of people can relate to, you know, these kids who are maybe like, maybe like 18 to 20 or so. You get the impression that they're all under 21 because a specific character is mentioned to be 21. Um, and you get the impression that, you know, that character is older than the rest of them. So let's say they're all like 17 to 20, just in that range. So that means that they're all post high school and they're kind of right in that college age range. But really the only two characters that you see, you know, who are actively engaged in, like, college are, you know, the neighbor, I think his name was Greg, and then Jay, you know, and everybody else just kind of seems to hang around and work at the, you know, local ice cream place. I mean, that is definitely a fear that you can relate to, is just the idea of being stuck somewhere you don't want to be, you know, so it's very relatable, you can, you know, get behind where those characters are, and that's a real fear that a lot of people have, you know, I definitely had that fear for the longest time that, like, oh god, I'm going to be stuck in South Mississippi the rest of my life, and granted, you know, until recently, I pretty much was, but that was more for job and relationship reasons rather than just being aimless so anyway we open on her in the pool and she's being spied on by some neighbor boys um, and that kind of is a recurring thing going forward you see those two neighbor boys come back on and off throughout the course of the movie and in general this movie is very voyeuristic especially toward jay you kind of always feel like the characters are being watched you feel like there is always something on the edge of the screen um and there are there are often moments where you can see something off on the edge of the screen and you have to wonder like is that something i need to be paying attention to you know, so your eyes are always darting, and especially when I saw this in theaters, your eyes are always darting to all the edges of the screen and looking for things that are maybe happening or lurking in the background. So you always have this sense of, like, dread and uneasiness and a sense of, like, being watched, you know, the entire movie. Her friends show up, and they're all just kind of hanging out. She has a date planned for later that evening that she's going to go on. So they're all just kind of hanging out, and, you know, you're getting to know these characters a little bit oh i was just gonna say that that scene where where you see all the characters hanging around watching tv it struck home for me because i have been in that aimless 
like that aimlessness I've been caught in it myself as well that was reminiscent to the times I would like go back home to New Orleans to visit my friends like in college when I was 19 20 and we were all just hanging out at someone's parents house not much to do we can't drink we're not going out anywhere so we just watch a movie or we just put on the TV and we're just kind of just laying there. It, 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 this movie does a good job of, at least for me, these kids were like kids that I knew and went to school with. Totally. Was friends with and or still, I still am friends with some of these people. But like when we were 18, 19, the way they were acting in the movie were was exactly the same way we were acting. Um, it was very relatable and that aimlessness does it kind of hit home like that that feeling of dread but dread of not the supernatural or horror but more of the dread of just life in general complacency complacency yes so jay goes on a date with a guy named hugh he's kind of this older guy <laughs> he is too cool for school is what i wrote down in my notes oh yeah he's got his uh his goatee and his little earring and he is probably the bad boy in town so she goes on a date with him and they go to the movie theater which again this kind of plays into the like time out of time that doesn't quite make sense i'm a cinephile i would say that i'm a movie buff right i have seen charade but let's be real how many people in that age range have ever seen charade or given a shit to see charade who weren't also like big cinephiles so either they're young burgeoning cinephiles going to see charade or this movie's bullshit you know because like there's no small town where they're just that 100 percent bored that they're gonna go see you know charade just because you know, even if that's, like, the only thing playing at the movie theater. You know, so, again, that just plays into, like, the time period that this movie tries to create is kind of bullshit. Because nobody that age would be going to see Charade. Let's be real. I, I will say, to give it a little bit of credit, though, like, even even around the towns that I'm, I'm nearby now, there are those kind of, like, hipster-style theaters that will play, like, oh, this weekend we're playing Rocky Horror Picture Show and, and like, midnight, two in the morning. Yeah, but that's, that's different than, like, Rocky Horror horror is different than yeah, like yeah. But, charade but they also will play like those off the wall movies as well like charade every once in a while like on a weeknight they'll they'll do that i'll just see a lot of a lot of younger kids will be going to it specifically if it's in a college town just from my experience with that anytime that i've ever gone to anything that's pre you know mid 70s i guess you know because i've been to a lot of the like flashback cinema stuff that they used to play um our local movie theater you know we saw raiders of the lost ark and jaws and just a lot of those classics there but anything pre mid 70s you would go and there would be maybe a handful of blue hairs there so to me at least it rings false that everybody in this town seems to be showing up for this old movie so <laughs> for charade <laughs> yeah so i guess like let's just chalk it up to like there's nothing going on in this town which another thing too and you see more of it as the movie progresses i don't know if this i think that yeah this movie's set for sure in detroit or around Detroit. Later in the movie, they specifically mention like Eight Mile and not being able to go, you know, into Eight Mile from the suburbs. Um, and I looked it up, and yeah, sure enough, like the movie was filmed in the Detroit area, which makes sense when you kind of see, you know, where the movie goes a little bit later. But yeah, that's that's the other thing too. Like, there's more to do in Detroit. So what are these kids like so bored about? Like, there's tons of stuff to do in Detroit. 
at least from my perspective, like I always see concerts kind of rolling through there and, you know, there's bound to be places to hang out. So I don't know. I, I think these are kind of like those things you chalk up to the dream logic yeah. part of the movie. So they go on a date. One of the first kind of interesting indicators we have is they play the game where you kind of pick a random stranger and, you know, you want to be that stranger. I've totally done this on a date oh, before. Yeah. <laughs> like at, When I was 18, 19, this was the type of shit I was, I, was, I thought I was fucking fly as hell when i was doing it they're looking around and you know she sees this like other young couple that's on a date and she says you know okay well you know let me guess you want to be that guy kind of with the undertone of like well that girl's cuter than me right so that's who you're looking at and surprisingly he says no i i want to switch places with that little kid and she was like, well, why? He's like, well, think about it. That little kid's got his whole life ahead of him, and you can do and you know whatever you want and start over and, you know, blah, blah. So, like, instantly, okay, well, you're already getting the idea that, like, this dude's something's up, and there's a reason why he said that, right? So that's, you know, your first little indicator. Um, but while they're sitting in the theater before the movie starts, he sees a woman standing at the back of the auditorium. He asks Jay if, he, if she also sees, you know, the woman standing back there, and Jay says no. So he immediately is like, okay, nope, fuck this. And they get up and they leave. And he kind of just says, like, ah, it just didn't feel good, blah, blah. So they leave. He does it in a really creepy way. Like, he's dragging her out, like, no, we gotta go fucking now. Yeah. Is, is kind of the attitude he has. And that's, that's kind of the thing. At that point, like, I think anybody that would be on a date would just be like, well... We're done. Yeah. That's exactly what I wrote down. I was like, how the fuck did she stay on this date after that? But whatever. Yeah. And they clearly just, like, go to Chili's or something, you know? Yeah. And... <laughs> But from there, like, yeah. I'm going like, to have a second date with her. If I had gone on a date with anybody who all of a sudden was just like, do you see that person standing over that side of the room? And I was like, nope. What are you talking about? We got to go. We got to go right now. Just be like, cool. Well, all right. Have fun with your evening. And I'm just going to go home and I guess watch Netflix and jerk off. So see ya. <laughs> But yeah, that's the thing that made me laugh so hard is after all of that, second date, totally going on a second date. It's going to be great. Yep. So there's another fear. If we're going to get the fear ticker, ding, fear of terrible dates. So anyway, they go on a date. She kind of says, hey, let's, you know, go back to the car. Wink, wink. It then kind of cuts to them making out. And then you see them actually like having sex in his car. Which is way out in the open, in my opinion. But So it's it's out in the open, but it's also in, like, an abandoned parking lot. Yeah. In front of what maybe looks like a hospital, I think? It's like a giant, like, multi-story, big square block building. It's a gutted out building, yeah. It's just, it's completely gutted out there in this abandoned parking lot. I was gonna say it looks like the hospital downtown in New Orleans after Katrina, but that's a very specific reference but if you want to look at get an idea look up pictures of charity hospital new orleans and like what it looked like after it's gutted out from katrina and you get an idea or sorry detroit to just shit on you but you know you could also just google pictures of detroit 2018 and true (laughs) (laughs) probably also accurate more more direct yeah so anyway they're having sex in the car this is kind of another one of those things that i think the movie's doing that's interesting from like a fear standpoint kind of what it's commenting on one of the biggest things that this movie's like preying on is the american specifically an american fear of teenage sex because you know after what we're about to talk about 
the characters don't really do anything to get anybody that's like a grown-up or of any kind of authority involved you know past this initial incident yeah you don't you oddly don't see many adults at all in this movie i feel like that's a lot of what the movie's commenting on is the fact that these kids are more afraid of like telling their parents they've had sex and they're more afraid of like what people think of them than oh shit i literally have an std demon that's tracking me um, like, that says a lot that they 100% like don't want to talk about it, don't want to address it with people in authority because that's going to get them in more trouble than the actual consequences. You know, it's just more the stigma of like having to tell your parents like, hey, I goofed and I had sex and I messed up and I have like a problem now versus just dealing with like the consequences itself. And something I noted, too, that this movie does a good job of is the sex isn't even, it's not romanticized. No. It's not made like to be this magical moment like a lot of movies have a problem with. It, it's just mundane, like, car sex. It's awkward. It's short. It's it's like, you know, the first time any of us had sex. It, it's just kind of one of those things. It's not this groundbreaking event. It's probably something that was just really fucking awkward for a lot of people. And I appreciated that. Yeah, it's good that the movie doesn't do a lot to make it explicit or try to make it sexy. It just shows it for what it is, and it's just a regular everyday thing. You know, I feel like if the movie did try to, like, sex up that scene and make it kind of steamy and erotic, then, like, that it doesn't work for, like, what this movie's trying to do, you know? So I, I feel like that was a good decision, ultimately. So anyway, they get finished having sex. He kind of gets out of the car, and you see him, like, in the trunk, like, fooling around with something, but the movie's really focused on Jay at that point. She's kind of just talking about how, you know, she's thought about leaving the town and just going and just doing something different and finding somewhere new to go and new experiences to have. And while she's talking, Hugh, you know, gets back in the car with her and then all of a sudden puts a rag over her mouth and starts smothering her. This could be a kind of a disturbing scene. For sure. They don't hold back on it. It, it, it does look like an abduction happening and it can be sudden and it can be a little freaky for some people um so just kind of that trigger warning to throw out there yeah i mean it's it's very disturbing um it's not i wouldn't say it's incredibly graphic by any means but it is just very disturbing you know in general to watch and it, it it's just one shot and it holds you know it doesn't really like pull away from it once she wakes up she is now tied to a wheelchair inside of the giant abandoned building that was overlooking that parking lot and that's kind of when we get the first exposition dump from Hugh in regards to, like, what's happening and what's going on in the plot. We find out that there is literally some kind of entity, um, and I guess that's how we should probably refer to it instead of just it, as in it follows. Um, let's just call it the entity, I guess. It is basically going to follow whoever the last person was who caught it, and it's just going to follow it nonstop until it kills you. And it's going to then kind of move its way down the chain. Yeah, so if it catches up to you, it'll kill you. So the whole point of the movie is is you're just trying to keep distance from it because if it ever gets right up on you, you're dead, basically. is It's kind of like uh, during the exposition dump from Hugh, and it's all hectic. He's all like kind of like... He's looking around while he's explaining this to Jay, who's also still tied up. 
and he's like looking out out uh, the windows and to see if the entity is on the way it's implied that you're fucked like you always need to be in this was something i forgot to mention in the opening scene the opening scenes did a good job of just showing how fucked you are it gives you that it gives you the idea that annie was just there was nothing like she could do she was just done for and so you get that feeling again in this scene with seeing how just frantic Hugh is as he's explaining this to Jay, who has no idea what the fuck's going on. She's just been chloroformed, basically, and now she's tied up. And then, yeah, once the entity catches up to whoever it's chasing, it'll kill them, and then it goes back to the person who had it previous, kills them, and then, like like Mansi was saying, just keep going down the line, killing people. And the only way you can get rid of it is by having sex with somebody and passing it on to them. Yeah, he's frantically explaining all this, and you could tell, like, she's just not having it she's not listening she's not paying attention because she's just 100 percent terrified by the situation she's now in what finally kind of gets her to like snap into attention to like what's going on is he wheels her over to the edge of this building where all the walls and windows have been blown out you know after he's explained to her how this works there's then somebody that's down in the parking lot who's walking toward the building that they're in and it's just this nude woman you don't see any details of you know who she is or anything else but it's just this woman who's silently robotically walking toward the building and she stops and stares right up at them so that kind of gets jay's attention and she starts kind of taking seriously what hugh has been telling her they kind of go on for a little while longer and eventually the the woman gets into the building is clearly walking toward them hugh grabs her by the wheelchair and you know wheels her out and that whole camera shot by the way is great with the camera mounted to the wheelchair where it's you know spinning around with it focused on jay that i love that camera shot and the entity when it's that one the first form it takes i took i tried to take track of all the forms the entity takes through this movie because it does assume it, it, it seems to shape shift into multiple people the first form is a naked woman whatever actress they got to to do that part the way she is walking it is very like, like Mansfield was saying is very robotic almost terminator-esque it's fucking creepy because it is just walking with a purpose towards jay not even looking at hugh at this point it is silent it is not making any noise it is just focused on her and you immediately get the sense that like if i catch up to you i'm gonna fucking kill you as they're you know rushing out of the building hugh basically just tells her you know like hey you know try not to put yourself in situations where you don't have an exit you know always pay attention to your surroundings um blah 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 so then the next scene cuts back to her friends all hanging out at her house you get the impression that her friends are also friends with her younger sister um so they're all hanging out there like normal uh, waiting for her to get back from this date so he pulls up in the car basically just dumps her half-naked body out into the middle of the street and he peels out her friends freak out and run to her you know it then cuts to the police being there and all the sirens and all the you know looky-loos from the neighborhood kind of gathering around to see what's going on and then you see you know from the inside of one of the neighbor's houses um one of the other characters greg who shows up later and his mom and his mom does make a comment of you know like oh god that family's such a mess the police officer interviewing jay and taking her statement is basically just like okay and then what happened okay but the sex was consensual okay so you don't know who this woman was okay sure whatever and he kind of blows it off um so that kind of goes back to what i was mentioning a second ago that you know this is the only instance in which 
any of these teenage characters reach out to their parents or people in authority. And what happens is exactly what you'd expect, which is Jay is, you seem to get the impression that, you know, she's more in trouble than anybody is actually, like, trying to help her. Because everything that's, like, help, quote, quote, is very half-ass. It's set up that, like, they're trying to figure out if this was a rape or not. And it almost seems like once they figure out that while there was no rape involved, as soon as they found that out, like you were saying, it was just kind of like, okay, run in the mill, like, let's go through these questioning and like, yeah, okay, this naked woman was coming after you now, sure. And so, yeah, there is a betray of trust there. It just goes back to the whole, you know, the reason why they're not seeking out help, you know, the reason why they don't just go to adults later, go to the police later and say, hey, this is what's happening. Partly because, you know, they don't think anybody's going to believe them, but also just because the stigma of... You know, I had a bad sexual experience. The whole societal norm of, like, you're not supposed to be having sex at this age. You shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage explicitly, you know, and that's quite common for, you know, anybody in the last couple of generations to kind of have shoved on them. That whole stigma seems to be scarier and more impactful than, like, the thing that's happening itself. She is then at the hospital for a brief moment as they're doing kind of like a checkup on her and make sure everything is okay. And there is a part where she's like watching out the doorway, I want to say. It's almost implied that like the entity is going to show up. It's just like a nurse passing by the door. It eventually cuts back to her back at her house with all her friends at their house. And they're having like a sleep. Like there's another character now. Paul. Uh, it's implied that Paul has known her all his life, all her life. They all grew up together in the same neighborhood. They're all neighborhood kids and all lifelong friends. And it's implied that like he, or it's not even implied, it's shown that he is extremely attracted to her. That it's, it's kind of implied that it's, she doesn't feel the same way. She's more just friends with him. And so it's kind of this there's this awkwardness, like, and I say awkwardness because I've been there. We've all uh, probably all have been there. Um, we've all felt a little bit like Paul at some point or another in our lives, but Paul was laying it on thick and it was kind of, it was something I needed to see, but made me feel uncomfortable because I know I've acted that same way of just being like, well, you know, I just, I think I, I like, I'm, I'll, you can trust me. I'm always your friend, blah, blah, blah. That whole, like that nice guy TM type attitude. He says like, cause she's freaked out. And so they're all, they're all going to stay over the night. And Paul said like, I'll stay up and, and, and hang out on the couch. And just like, if someone's coming after you, you know, I'll be down there guarding downstairs. Cause it's implied that her mother works nights or the parents now are like no longer in the movie. You see her mom briefly at one of the earlier scenes. And then after that, it's just gone. She's gone. Oh no, actually, I totally forgot about the classroom scene. The main thing that really happens there is she's just sitting in class and she kind of is not focused. She's staring out the window. Um, she still hasn't quite gotten over, you know, the trauma that she's just experienced. Um, but she suddenly just sees this old woman in a hospital gown slowly wandering across the, anyway, like the grassy area on the college. The woman just kind of starts wandering toward her and she gets kind of freaked out and rushes out of class. She kind of runs to the end of the hallway and realizes like, uh, I'm just being dumb. I'm overreacting. And she turns around and then boom, there's the woman following her. You know, so she gets freaked out at that point and does actually, you know, run home. Um, and that's where we pick back up. You know, with her being freaked out and talking to her friends about, like, yo, with everything that just happened, you told me this would happen, and I thought it was bullshit, but I just had a really weird experience today. So, at that point, yeah, they decide to go back to her house, 
and just all hang out with her for the night and make sure that, you know, she's okay, she's comforted. They all kind of just blow it off as, okay, you're still recovering, you're just kind of overreacting a little bit, but we'll just do this to make you feel better. She's having trouble sleeping, so she actually does go downstairs and hangs out with Paul for a little while. And they're, they're kind of talking. This is when you kind of get an idea of, of the type of dynamic they have and how long they've been friends. Again, they're <laughs> fucking bothered me again. They're watching another one of those dated TVs and it's another like dated black and white sci-fi horror movie. Then all of a sudden you hear a window break in the kitchen. She's freaked out. She, she just straight up says, Paul, go check it. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Like, go fucking check out what that is. And so he he runs into the kitchen. There's an awkward pause. It's kind of like a tense moment. And then he runs back out and he's like, there's nothing there. The I don't know what broke the window. I think maybe something hit it or whatever, but there's nothing there. He's like, I'll, I'll go get your, uh, I'll go get your sister. I'll go wake her up real fast. So he runs upstairs. So she decides to go check out the, the kitchen and it's very intense. It's one of those shots where it's focused on Jay as she's walking into the kitchen. When she finally gets in the kitchen and looks like into it, her face turns from horror and then that's when you see what she's seeing and I did mark this down as like the uh, the first major jump scare is this really fucking creepy woman who is like half dressed, like her clothes are all ragged, like barely hanging on to her. Her breasts, I think like one or two of her or like both her breasts are exposed and she's pissing on the floor, like literally peeing on the floor and she's like reaching out at Jay like a zombie basically and it's the entity it's assumed this third form now in the movie so Jay freaks the fuck out understandably she runs upstairs runs into her uh, sister's room everyone's there now and they're like what the fuck's going on she's like close the door close the door so they close it and then you hear some knocking on the door she's freaking out and then Yara it's Yara you hear Yara's voice and she's like let me in what's going on so they're like okay cool yeah you know well, we'll just open the door. It's Yara. So they open the door and they're like, see, nothing's there. Nothing's there. And Yara is like walking into the, the room. And then this was, this could be another jump scare. It didn't get me too bad, but it could be another jump scare for people. Then you see the entity walk up behind Yara. This time it's this fucking weird tall man who's dressed all in white. His skin is pale. He just looks creepy as fuck. And he just creeps up to Yara and like looks in like the last shot is him like looking into the room to see that Jay is in there and so Jay goes out the window literally like escapes out the window is freaking out and she runs all the way to a uh, playground it's it looked like and she's on the swing just sitting there and then her friends catch up to her then Greg shows up we've seen shots of Greg kind of seeing what's going on around the neighborhood and now he's like finally introduced into the into the movie and he's he's like the other cool hot neighbor guy that's around their age but clearly like not part of their group of friends and i wrote down greg sucks and so does paul but for very different reasons uh <laughs> let's talk about that now that we like have greg like we mentioned earlier the, the male characters in this movie are pretty aggravating i think their performances are fine but the characters are definitely grating you know and this is probably by design because you know the majority of teenage boys have a handful of things on their mind they definitely are both coming at jay but from different angles for sure greg is definitely kind of the hot cool guy with his long hair and his denim jacket and his rock and roll t-shirts right and then paul is definitely kind of 
like you said earlier, the good guy TM. Like, he is that character to a T, where he's trying to be Mr. Polite and White Knight every situation. He's always there at her side, like, yeah, I'll protect you, I'm gonna be here for you, and, you know, whatever you need, like, I'm here, I'll sleep on the floor to, like, protect you. Like, he's got that attitude, and it's just grating. Yeah. But then on the other side of things, Greg is just, like, the most ratty mustache douchebag high school guy, you know? So... <laughs> Yeah. And and the actor who plays Paul does a good job of walking that fine line of you can't really tell if he is being genuine, he does genuinely care about Jay, or if he really is all just trying to do this to, to get laid. Like, if I keep being nice enough to her enough times, she'll have sex with me, the the nice guy TM. Uh, I, I made a note that all three major male characters in this movie, Hugh, Paul, and Greg, they're all almost like different archetypes of like, teenage guys hugh is is kind of like the sensitive hot guy who has like a dark secret greg is like the in your face like too cool guy and then paul is like the nice guy milk toast tm kind of the creepiest of the three even though all three of them are creepy in different ways so i I don't know again i don't know if that was done i'm sure it was done on purpose that like you had these three male characters and all three of them were creepy and but showed different sides of how creepy young men can be yeah and even though like we find the male characters to be aggravating i think it's a it's a sign of good writing that we we have a good sense of who all of these characters are and their personality traits just based on the writing, the way that they're dressed, the way that the performances are kind of notched. You know, I think it's a good sign of writing that we can get all of this information without it having to be, like, told at the audience, right? Yeah, it's a lot of show-don't-tell. Like, they, they do a great job of just showing little things, like little mannerisms of Paul of him, like looking at Jay while she's not looking at him or like making a face when Greg like puts his arm around Jay to comfort her. And then you see Greg like kind of obviously hitting on Jay. They all do very good jobs like with their body language where it's not spelled out for you, but it's easy to tell like what's going on with each male character. You get a good sense that there's a lot of history between these characters, especially the moment that Paul and Jay are on the couch together, just kind of talking about things that happened previously Um, So I like those little nuances. Speaking of which, um, let's take a step back to seeing the entity in the kitchen. To me, that is the most terrifying instance of the entity. I, I would agree with you. It's the girl who looks like she's possibly been assaulted, and she's got, like, runny makeup, broken teeth... And, like you said, her clothes are, like, kind of half pulled off. Like, she's wearing one sock, and her her shirt's ripped, and she's got a breast exposed. So she's clearly, like, been through some kind of trauma, but you don't know what. That one image, like, has a lot of weight and history to it that you can put a lot of your own assumptions onto. And I think that that one is the most effective of all of them. And it's also kind of the most different to a degree because the rest of the time in the movie, the entity either shows up as just a nude person or they show up as somebody that's like in underclothes. Like they're wearing like a white t-shirt and underwear, like the big giant tall guy that shows up in the hallway behind Yara in that one scare moment. Um, there's two or three other times where the entity kind of shows up as somebody familiar, but they're always just like in underclothes and white t-shirts. The entity in the kitchen is not. The entity in the kitchen's dressed 
completely in regular clothes. That's by far the most terrifying one because the rest of the time they're just kind of pale-faced zombie kind of things coming at you, but that one's very different, and that one to me is by far the most disturbing instance of the entity. One of the things that Hugh does mention in like that exposition in the beginning that's really intense right after they have sex is he one of the things he mentions off offhand is that the entity can take the shape of things it's killed, people you may know, or just random people. It gives me the idea that whatever this woman in the kitchen, who she was, it, it's implied to me that something god awful happened to her and then the entity caught her. Like maybe the entity was passed on to her through an assault of some kind and then the entity caught up to her killed her and now it can assume her form basically and that also too is just another layer of horror built on top of that of that and it's a brief moment that form doesn't stay for a long time but it's the most shocking by far i would agree with you 100 percent. it's the creepiest it's probably the scariest scene in the movie in my opinion yeah that's all there is to it. So I like the idea of what you're bringing up specifically for something that happens at the end of the movie, which I'll mention it when we get there. I don't necessarily think that the entity is always taking the form of people that it's subsumed because um, it can still take the form of just like rando people that are around to like affect that person. And it can take the form of loved ones, too, yeah. or, like, people that you trust. So, yeah, it's not always taking the form of somebody it's killed. There are moments where it takes the form of somebody who is still alive, or at least that we, we think is still alive. Yeah. Now, I just think at certain points, sometimes it might take the form of its previous victims. I think it does, too. Or maybe just maybe victims of sexual-related crimes. This is the part of the movie that I enjoy, because it shows and gives you enough to make you think but it leaves a lot of questions open, but in a good way of just like kind of to dig into and look for a deeper meaning. And this is one of those moments of like, what what the fuck form is this? Who is this, basically? I like the idea of what you're mentioning, and I will rope back around to that when we get to the pool scene at the end, because there is kind of a moment that I put together this time seeing it that I didn't think about before. We are in the playground where Jay ran off to. Greg and company essentially pack up in the car, and they go to hunt down and figure out who Hugh was. You kind of hear her mom, Jay's mom, earlier say that Hugh had been using a fake name to rent a house in the city. And so everybody was kind of weirded out by that because this guy was clearly not who he said he was, right? They go to this house and they kind of go in and start looking around. And this house is clearly like all rigged up against intruders. Like there's bottles and cans over all the windows and doors that would rattle in case somebody was coming through. The house is kind of empty. But as they're investigating it, they keep finding like little bits of clothing that belong to Hugh. He's got all these little back door ways to get around. Like there's a part where Jay's looking at some clothes in a closet and this giant panel in the back of the closet just falls out and scares the shit out of her. Um, and her sister's on the other side of the wall in the other room. So he had clearly built this house with multiple escape exits. So they're, you know, looking around. Paul happens to find a photo of the Hugh character and a girl standing against lockers and Hugh's got on his football, his uh, basketball jersey and the girl's got on her uh, cheerleader uniform and they see the school logo. So they immediately know like, okay, this is the school we need to go check out. So they go to the school. There was a note I want to make because it, it kind of clicked in my head um, when they're at the school and they're walking around. 
I don't know if the movie does this on purpose because it, it it did it also when uh, during the scene at the college when Jay gets freaked out by the woman in the gown. All the other like characters in the background are all couples, like young looking. They look like they're attractive. You never see anyone who is unattractive in the background, at least from what I could tell. And again, I don't know if that was just something that the movie does on purpose. I'm sure it is, if there is a purpose behind that. But did you did you uh, like did you see that as well? That ton like a lot of the background characters are that way. I didn't necessarily notice that a lot of the background characters were attractive per se, but I did notice that it focuses a lot on showing couples. And it yeah. shows couples like making out and like holding hands and interacting with each other. So just showing that there's always kind of a breeding ground for this entity to be in. So that's that is one thing I for sure noticed. So while they're at this high school, um, they go through some yearbooks and they are able to find Hugh, who is actually Jeff. They track down where he lives and they go to his parents' house in a different part of town entirely. And so they knock on the door and say, hey, is Jeff home? Not cluing, you know, Jeff's mom into what's going on at all. She's just like, oh yeah, Jeff will be down in a minute. So then you cut to them all sitting around the backyard, and Jeff is clearly just like, how did y'all find me? Why are you here? I don't like this. Like, you need to leave, right? But he basically, they pressure him into kind of spilling some more of the beans. Which, if I was there, I'd be like, motherfucker, you abducted Jay. You have yeah. no say in this. At this point, like, they know that something is up enough to believe his story. So they're at least kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt to, like, spill some more of the beans before they just, you know, straight up, like, maybe go to the authorities and reveal, like, who he is, etc. So that's where you just kind of find out some more of the background around, you know, he had a one-night stand. That's when it started following him. You know, he figured out, you know, kind of how it works and these different rules. You know, he essentially just boiled it down to, like, you need to leave. We don't need to be in the same place. Don't ever contact me again. And do, you know, whatever you can, pass it off to somebody else. Because if it kills you, it's then going to come back for me. And it's going to continue down the line until it gets to whoever started it. There's a nice touch in this scene because, like, while he's in the middle of explaining all this, he pauses and he's like, do y'all see that girl right there? Do y'all see that girl right there that's walking towards us? And they all turn around and it's like this girl in, like, a soccer jersey or something or a jogging outfit. And they're like, yeah, we fucking see her. And he's like, okay, okay. And he's like, he thought it was the entity who caught up to Jay, basically. Yeah, and it just shows, like, his level of paranoia um, that he's living with now because... You know, this thing is just kind of always there. It's always in the background. It's always in his head. It's always this mistake um, that he's now having to live with. From there, they kind of put a plan together to go to this, I guess, lake house, beach house kind of thing. I'm not really sure what body of water they're near. I'm assuming it's probably one of the Great Lakes or some other kind of lake in general. But they go to this place that belongs to Greg's family they go to just hang out there and get away because it's outside of town and it at least buys them several hours if not days before something catches up to them so once they're there you see greg kind of showing jay how to shoot a gun that was at the house uh they all are hanging out at the beach and they're drinking and you know just sitting around in chairs this gun by the way appears to have like infinite bullets so just keep that in mind, too. Yeah, it it definitely, you know, you don't see them reload this gun, is all I'll say. <laughs> and they, sh- they shoot it quite a lot. It cuts to the next scene, and they're all hanging out, like, on the shore of whatever body of water this is. 
and they're all just kind of drinking and hanging out. Greg steps off to go pee over on the other side of things in these rushes. You slowly start to see Yara float by in the water, and then it cuts back to Yara in a white t-shirt and underwear slowly walking toward them, and they don't see her, but you as the audience see, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Like, she's in the water, and there's her walking behind him. Like, that's the entity, right? Jay sees her, but then sees, oh wait, you're in the water. Oh wait, oh wait, oh wait. And then her hair all of a sudden just invisibly lifts up, and she starts getting pulled upward um, by the entity, which you don't you don't see in that moment, but you just see it pulling her hair, and you see her hair kind of free-floating. So at that point, everybody else can see her hair. So they know, like, oh shit, this is real. So at that point... You know, she's struggling to get away from the thing. Her sister's trying to help her. Paul picks up a chair and whacks it, and then it immediately just, like, throws him across the way, like, punches him, like, 20 feet away. So at that point, they all start freaking out. And this is the first part where you realize that the entity has some physical presence. Like, it, it can be hit. Even if it can't be seen, it can be hit. It This is the first time it interacts with another person that it's not following when it pushes Paul away. So this is kind of a, a freaky revelation. And so... Um, so they end up scrambling into this boat shed where the gun was being kept in a lockbox. Um, so they slam the door shut. Greg is still outside because he has no idea what's going on. But they run inside. Jay grabs the pistol and steps outside and starts shooting at the entity. And Greg at that point is just like, oh shit, she's literally just like firing right down line, like where he's kind of running up toward <laughs> yeah, him. Um, yeah. So he just immediately has to take cover. He's like, what the fuck is happening? But at this point, you know, she does nail the entity and you see like it bleeds, you know, but it just kind of gets up and keeps walking. So um, at that point, you know, they shut the door again, it's banging on the door and then finally it like kicks the entire bottom of the door out in this big giant hole. Uh- at one point in the like in one of the mini windows of the shed, you see the tall guy walk by again, like he's walking around the shed trying to look for a way in. Uh, so when yeah, after the he it creates this hole that it kicks in, it, it kind of zooms in on the hole, and then Greg show like Greg sticks his head into the hole and is like, "What the fuck are y'all doing?" Basically, they're like, "Don't let it in, don't let it in," and like he runs off to go get the car started, or what was he doing at that point where he he ran off? Honestly, I can't remember why he ran off, but he does like run away and then as soon as he's gone boom the entity pops back up in the hole and this time it's the neighbor kid that was spying on jay from earlier in the movie and i did i did mark this one down as a jump scare it's not too bad but yeah it's it's fucking creepy this the entity as the kid was while it wasn't as creepy as the woman in the kitchen it's definitely like as far as like supernatural ghost classical horror yeah it's pretty fucking creepy because it also growls at her and shit too it's like the first time you hear the entity make any noise so at that point jay basically runs to the main doors of this boat shed and throws them open and runs out and everybody else is chasing after her and she just runs to what we can assume is Greg's car. I'm pretty sure it's Greg's car. And she 
you know, starts it up, pulls down the driveway, and everybody's chasing after her. And I love these car shots because you're seeing through the front of the car from, like, the back seat. It's like the camera's positioned in, like, the trunk area of this station wagon. Um, so you see her pulling down this long driveway, and she kind of whips around. She starts taking off down this little country road, and then this big truck pulls out onto the road, but she's not quite paying attention, so she swerves goes off the road and into a cornfield. Um, so then, you know, we cut to her back in the hospital again. <laughs> yeah. This movie goes to the hospital a few times. So she's, you know, got her head bandaged up, and she's back in the hospital with her head bandaged up and her arm in a cast. Everybody around her, you know, they kind of talk about what happened at this point. And it's here that Greg finally kind of sidles on up and is like, you know, you know, I could take care of this for you. Kind of gives them that vibe. So Jay and Greg end up having sex in the hospital, you know, and that's kind of the plan that they put together is like, all right, I'm going to pass this on to you and let's kind of go from there. Because Greg, Greg doesn't, Greg doesn't believe in it. He's, he's straight up just like, if it is, is something chasing you, it'll be dead when it comes to me because I don't believe in it or it doesn't exist at all. This scene is kind of interesting too because it kind of slowly pans to Jay's room. Like it does this panorama of like hospital windows and you're seeing like the lockers of where the nurses and the doctors like put their stuff up when they're going on shift and you see like an empty hospital room and then it, it comes to the hospital room and there's Jay and Greg having sex. And again, this is where I noted, like it shows couples because there's like, or not couples, but like there's a doctor and a nurse or a man and a woman in scrubs just talking by the lockers. And they're obviously kind of like hitting on each other. And again, that just overall theme is there as it pans over to Jay and Greg having sex. Yeah, and I get the idea that, like you said, Greg still clearly doesn't believe in any of this, so he just uses this as an opportunity to, you know, finally get in her pants, which is what he's been kind of after this whole time. And then sure enough, it like, while they're having sex, too, it's interesting because she's not engaged at all. She's literally, like, looking in the opposite direction, just staring off, like, completely unaffected. You know, it's just become such a, you know, mundane thing to her now, and you know, the, with the level of trauma that she's experienced in the last few days, you know, she's just, she's broken a bit. So, you know, it cuts from there and you see Greg in either like the cafeteria of the college or maybe at the mall or something. And he's sitting at a table with three or four of the girls clearly just like laughing and flirting. So you get the idea of like exactly what kind of guy he is. From here, it Jay leaves the hospital. They go back to they're they're back home and everything and jay i think i don't know if she hears a noise outside like she keeps like it's obviously showing that like mansfield was saying she's scarred by this emotionally scarred kind of in shock still so like she's looking out her windows at night just to make sure this entity isn't following her she watches greg like park his car or like arrive home walk in the door like open the door and close behind him and like retire for the night basically and then you see Greg again, all in dressed in white, and you realize, oh shit, it's the entity, and it's walking towards Greg's house now because Greg has it. The entity kind of like stops at the door for a second, knocks on it, it doesn't answer. Then the entity goes to the side where one of the windows is, picks up like a brick and just smashes the window and climbs inside. So Jay starts freaking out, and she like tries calling Greg, telling him like don't an like like don't answer the door and this like that, or the entity's in the house. 
So he's not answering, so she runs over to Greg's house. So once she gets across the street to his house, she climbs into the window that the entity smashed and kind of slowly makes her way through the house and up the stairs. And once she's up the stairs, at the end of the hallway, the entity is standing there, and it's Greg's mom that we saw briefly at the beginning of the movie, and she's in a nightgown. She's pounding on the door, trying to get him to open the door. And she's screaming, like, Greg, don't open the door, don't open the door. But, of course, he opens the door and is just like, Mom, like, what are you doing? And before that, the entity actually turns and looks at at Jay for a second, like, as she's screaming at him, don't open the door. It does turn and acknowledge her that she's there, but then keeps right back at what it's doing. Yeah. So, at that point, Greg does open the door and is just like, Mom, what the fuck? And it pounces on her, on him immediately. Um, so Jay kind of eases in to see what's happening, and you just see the entity, like, straddling Greg and just kind of rubbing and grinding on him, but you don't get a sense of what's happening. The entity also has him, like, by the wrists. You can see he's kind of struggling to push back, but there's, like, a weird, gross kind of white fluid that's coming off of the entity as well, where it's got his wrists grasped. Um, and then it just kind of cuts to his, like, bluish, cold, dead body. I, I wrote down that the entity sexed him to death. Because it was very much, like, this violent, like, sexual action the entity was doing. Again, like, it shows it just for enough time to, like, freak you out and get, get a sense of sort of what's what it's doing. But not enough to, like, know exactly what it's doing. It, it's doing some kind of, like, fucked up, perverted sexual gestures on Greg, but killing him in the process. And it's never quite spelled out what exactly it does to you, like, when it catches you. And Greg's mom is also, like, half naked as well. Like, she's she has her nightgown on, but she's only, like, wearing, I think, panties. And, like, there are even shots where, again, you see, like, her exposed breasts. So again, it's like the entity, even though it's taken the form of, of a loved one, it's almost like a little bit of a perversion of that loved one. Yeah, the entity is always in some sexualized manner. Again, it's always people like in their underclothes, whether it's like a nightshirt and underwear or just completely naked in a lot of cases. It's always a sexualized version of whoever it's you know inhabiting or imitating with the exception of the kid uh, the even i mean the kid is dressed all in white as well but the kid is almost like the ent- it's the only time the kid the entity acts animalistic is when it's the kid yeah. otherwise it, it just acts like it's just like a terminator it's walking towards you um so i wonder I wonder if there's some kind of greater understanding or or something with that like of of just like it acting like when it's a child, it acts completely animalistic. Yeah. So at this point, the entity gets up and starts making its way toward Jay because she's now next in line again. So Jay runs out of the house, gets in her car, and just takes off. She drives and drives and drives and drives out to the middle of nowhere and parks, you know, kind of at the edge of this park um, and just sleeps on the hood of her car with the lights on because that's she just drove until she could get far enough away that she could at least get a little bit of sleep um and then she wakes up when it's daylight um she kind of hears a noise and walks a little bit further and she's on the shore of again another lake or some kind of body of water and she sees a boat where these like three guys are all hanging out and then she just kind of resolutely makes her mind up and you see her you know, take off her shoes and take off her leggings. Then you see her just kind of walking toward the water. And then it cuts 
immediately to her in her car and she's wet and her cast is all kind of melted and she's clearly been crying and that's easily like the most heartbreaking and in some ways disturbing scene in this movie because I mean it does not at all show you what happened but you can 100% infer what happened which is she probably swam out to this boat and just kind of gave herself to these three guys you know at least one of them if not possibly all three of them to try and pass this thing away you know from her and from people that she knows immediately they leave it ambiguous enough too though where it could also been that that was her plan but she didn't follow through with it yeah and and she just got in the water it's never really like they don't spell it out for you again it's one of those things that you kind of leave it up to what you think happened and it's a very nice touch to the movie yeah and it's like i said it's by far the most heartbreaking scene because whether she did or whether she didn't she's clearly upset and she's clearly traumatized by it as you see her driving back so she arrives back at her house everybody's still kind of there and they were you know maybe wondering like where she went but she just kind of shrugs it off and at that point you know she knows that it's going to be coming back eventually so they try to come up with a plan of like how to deal with it fairly definitively she's talking to paul and they kind of discuss you know like where can we go and you know, she, she suggests the first place that the two of them kissed years ago. Well, when they're making that plan, too, Paul tries to be like, well, you know, if you wanted to, you could pass it to me to help protect you. And we get like basically like coming on or like, let's have sex. And she declines him. Well, not even just that, but he also just says, like, well, why'd you go for Greg? You know, I could have oh, done yeah, that yeah, for yeah. you. And it's yep. just like, oh, God, about... you f- You're that guy. fucking yeah. white knight asshole. I forgot about that, yeah. Anyway, so they get this plan together, and you see them driving, and they get to a part of town where they finally stop, and they're carrying suitcases. And that's at the moment where Yara's talking about Eight Mile and how their parents didn't let them go to, you know, the Eight Mile area because it was a, quote, bad part of town, you know. Um, So that's the point at which we know for sure, like, okay, this is Detroit. You see them go to what looks like some kind of abandoned high school, maybe? I don't know. I get the impression that, you know, the high school or wherever they're going is maybe abandoned, but there's clearly still a pool that's in service because... You know, the lights still work, the pool is still clean, obviously, so it's some kind of facility that has an indoor, like, Olympic-sized pool because there's racing lines all measured out and it's like a big indoor kind of thing. So what they start doing is taking all these electric items and they daisy-chain plug everything together and set all these items along the edges of the pools. There's lamps and a typewriter and one of the old tube TVs. And then Jay gets into the pool. So the whole idea, I guess, is just using her as bait. So that way when the entity shows up, the entity will go into the pool with her and then she can swim out and they can kick the electric stuff into the pool to maybe try and electrocute the entity. When the entity shows up, it it just stands there at the edge of the pool like, nah, motherfucker, I know what you're trying to do. And it starts walking around the edge of the pool, picking up the items that they had plugged up and heaving them at Jay in the middle of the pool. The first one that goes in, you know, it doesn't hit her, but you do see the lights kind of a little bit. The electricity kind of fades. And that's when Yara just kind of says like, oh God, you know, thank God that plan didn't work. Ha ha ha, because Jay's still in the pool, right? But then the entity just kind of keeps walking around the edge of the pool and throwing more items at her. 
So they're trying to figure out where it is. At that point, Paul also grabs the gun and is kind of wildly shooting, trying to figure out where it is. And Jay is trying to point at it, but it keeps throwing stuff at her. And so she keeps having to duck under the water to get away from it. Do you think the entity was trying to electrocute her, like turning the the tables on the plan, or just like incapacitate her so it can get in the pool and get her? Like, what do you think the entity was trying to do exactly in this scene? I'm not 100% sure. I mean, it could have been either. It could be like, oh, I see exactly what you're doing, so I'm not following this trap, but I'm going to put you in the same trap. At that point, it had thrown like three or four other things at her, and she still hadn't been electrocuted yet, so I'm not really sure if it was trying to do that or if it was just trying to like throw stuff at her to like knock her out make her easier to get like you were saying i don't know but either way the entity is completely ignoring for the most part all of the other friends at one point paul shooting wildly at the entity trying to hit it does hit yara in the leg all the way across the other end of the pool another thing to note and this is this is what i was going to bring back up later when it first shows up you don't see it only jay sees it and she's telling them like it's here it's just standing on the edge of the pool and they're like what is what is it what does it look like and she just says like i can't tell you like you you know you don't want you don't want to know you don't want to know right so what's interesting is once the audience sees the entity it's a middle-aged guy with a beard and he's like got on you know like boxer shorts that guy i believe or at least what i think we're like supposed to infer is that that guy is jay and kelly's dad it's implied earlier in the movie that their dad passed away or, or he's just gone. not in the, yeah he's not in the picture yeah. but you do see right at the beginning as jay is getting ready for her date with hugh at the beginning of the movie there is a polaroid photo of that same guy with her so you get the impression that that's her father and that's why she didn't want to say who it was because obviously that would like freak them out and that would definitely freak out her sister so that's just kind of an interesting layer to this where you know if this is somebody that you know they love then you know it's just ultra effective if it's your parent coming after you but if we're also going to maybe look at the angle of you know the entity goes after people that it's been possessed by or whatever or that it has previously killed it adds an extra wrinkle to that as well if you think well maybe what if the dad like caught the entity at some point in this chain and he is one of the people that it took out um so you can read it you know both ways and i think it's interesting regardless but anyway at this point they're still struggling to figure out where the entity is exactly so the sister kelly runs over and grabs a blanket out of the backpack that they brought and she's throwing the blanket around until it finally drapes over the form of the entity which again is another interesting moment where you realize like oh there is a physical presence to it because the sheet does hang on the form of a body and at that point paul walks over with the gun puts it right up to its head and pulls the trigger and then it you see bloodshot come out of the um out of the bed sheet and it falls into the water but it still keeps going so you know it's it's coming after jay she's swimming to get out of the pool and just as she's about to get out it grabs her by the leg and drags her back down paul goes to the edge of the pool and starts firing toward where he thinks it might be and fires a few shots before finally hitting it in the head again um, and at that point jay is able to get out of the pool 
from there, it kind of pauses for a brief moment. Jay looks over the edge of the pool, and you just slowly start to see the pool fill with blood. And it's just this huge, massive cloud of blood overtaking the entirety of the pool. You know, you're to assume that you're seeing what Jay is seeing, so not necessarily like what is actually there. At one point, one of them asked Jay, like, what's it doing now? And, and she's like, she says, all I see is blood. So it's implied that, like, the nightmare is over, basically. So, once again, they end up back in the hospital for, like, the fourth time in this movie. But this time for Yara, not for Jay. Yeah, this time it's because Yara got shot in the leg. I can't, I was thinking about that in my head, too. Like, geez, these kids have all been to the hospital, like, four times in the last week. And every single time they come back in, it's just something else. You know, like, oh, our friend is now shot in the leg. And, like, nobody bothers to ask questions about that. Like, what happened? Or, like, you don't see any police there interviewing them. Just like, oh, just gunshot in the leg. No big. The same with the gun that doesn't apparently need reloading. Just, this is nightmare logic. Yeah. That's all, that's all I'm going to attribute it to. <laughs> So, Jay and Paul basically just kind of decide 100% like, yo, we're gonna fix this, I know how we can fix it. So, Jay and Paul finally, like, have sex. And then it cuts away to Paul driving around, kind of in some kind of incognito disguise. He's got, like, a beanie on and a big jacket. And you see him drive into all the shady parts of town that we saw earlier. And he basically kind of comes around a curb where there's two... Uh, street workers and he kind of makes eye contact with one of them and goes around the corner so what you can infer is that he basically picks up a prostitute to pass it off and just kind of put it into like this never-ending loop essentially and then it cuts back to him and jay you know walking down the sidewalk you do see a guy behind them walking just steadily in the same direction so you're kind of wondering like okay what's going on what's going on what's going on um but then you see jay reaches over and grabs paul's hand and they walk off together you know holding hands and then it cuts the credits so it leaves it a bit ambiguous as far as you know how it ends definitively do you in your opinion that person that's following them at the end do you think that's the entity i don't know either way and i don't really I don't think it matters necessarily. I don't think so either. It's kind of the like, does the top at the end of Inception keep spinning or does it fall over? Like, does it matter? You know, I don't think so. You know, I like the way that the movie kind of ends on that ambiguous note. Um, but it is very bittersweet how it ends with her and Paul, because on one hand, you feel like they probably made the best decision in terms of getting rid of the entity but at the same time like they both had to make massive compromises on their own personal terms and i personally don't like the idea of her and paul ending up together because paul clearly like gets exactly what he wanted and i don't feel like that's earned or deserved on his part you know so it's kind of bittersweet in the way that it ends because you you have a feeling that they probably are safe but at the same time like you don't like the way that they resolve it yeah, in a fucked up way, honestly, like the best pairing, at least in terms of like build up to it, is her and Hugh because you see them actually on a date, and you know Hugh is actually being charming, like at certain points. Besides that, that part of the theater, like, do you see that woman? And then they fucking run out. That should ended the date right there. But beyond that, he was like being charming, whereas the other two just kind of like. Greg kind of weasels his way in and Paul's just being a white knight. Yeah, no, I would agree with you in, in that. I, I think it, the bittersweetness of that ending extends also to their own relationship because 
the expressions on their faces, like even when they're having sex, like the expression on Jay's face is not one of pleasure or happiness. Yeah, not at all. And neither one of them, like at the end when they're walking together, neither one of them have an expression of like a positive expression on their face. Yeah. Um, it's just this expression of brokenness. But then they reach and and hold each other's hand. So there's all this despair and aimlessness. Again, that we go back to the aimlessness that we brought up in the beginning of this. But then they grab each other's hand. So there's like that moment of hope. So to completely loop back around to the beginning of this conversation, the indoor pool scene, although the conceit of it, you know, in this plan that they put together is kind of goofy. I do find that indoor pools have a slightly terrifying quality to them. Um, there's something just interesting about the lighting, um, all of that lighting from under the pool coming up and the way that diffuses the whole room. Um, just also the weirdness of this entire body of water just in the middle of this area and a weird sense of helplessness if you're in the middle of that. You know, like Jay is basically incapacitated for the most part when she's in the pool. Also, too, it just reminds me of not only the ending of Let the Right One In, which is a movie that we will for sure cover on this podcast, but also that episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, where there was, like, the zombie pirate guy that lived in yep. the school pool. Yep, I can't yep. remember. I can't remember what episode it was, but that scene where the zombie monster thing just like rises up out of the you know middle of the pool um that's that's burned into the back of my kinder trauma brain and i don't even remember the context of that episode necessarily beyond you know there being an indoor pool and kids drowning in the pool but that zombie thing is just there and like that's every time i'm in an indoor pool of any kind that's immediately what i think of it's just like that thing's in here with me so uh, something else i was reading too so i know you had mentioned it earlier i wanted to get your opinion on this do you think the entity is like a basically a demonic std or because I've, I've read a lot of interpretations of this movie that like some people interpret it as like a metaphor for the aids crisis i think the the screenwriter and director i forget his name i think he was saying no the movie just takes place in this nightmare and it really represents like death is going to get us all at some point or another but we can enjoy life like through our relationships with other people all these all these kind of different messages i don't know that i buy that take because if it was just simply an expression of death then there wouldn't be the sexual angle to it at all it would just be another final destination movie right yeah and actually before you get into it so the the director is david robert michelle this is i'm reading this off of the it follows article on wikipedia and under the interpretations and this is the direct quote from mitchell He said, I'm not personally interested in where it, quote unquote, comes from. To me, it's dream logic in the sense that they're in a nightmare. And when you're in a nightmare, there's no solving the nightmare, even if you solve it. Mitchell said that while Jay opens up to danger through sex, sex is the one way in which she can free herself from the danger. We're all here for a limited amount of time and we can't escape our mortality. But love and sex are two ways in which we can at least temporarily push death away. So, yeah, I mean, like that angle... Sure, I can see some of that. If it's just simply an expression of death, then I don't necessarily know that I buy that. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sexual nature to it. Um, Whether you want to look at it that way as, you know, it's not only a way to, like, meet death head on, but it's also a way to, like, enjoy the life you do have. I've kind of always just seen it as basically an expression of the stigmatization that 
you know american culture puts on teenage sex you know it's it's this mistake you have to live with it's the std you catch because you had you know unprotected sex and you had no idea what you were doing when you were a teenager or maybe like you have a child um because of that action or any of the other things that could go wrong with you having sex as a young person who's maybe especially not like informed about how that works and the protections that you need to take and the emotional maturity that you need to have to really like be ready for that and be in the right position for that you know and there's nothing wrong with it necessarily but sex at any age can go poorly right but because this movie is dealing specifically with young people i think it's specifically dealing with young people having sex and that's i think the biggest thing is it's more the entity is more the stigma catching up to you and the mistake catching up to you i think that's more what it's playing on rather than just strictly death you know and we joke all the time like especially people our age and younger you know there is no more health education anymore there's no actual sex ed anymore in high schools it's all we're ever told is don't have sex or you're gonna have sex and die or you're gonna have sex and, <laughs> and your penis is gonna fall off yeah your dick's gonna, gonna fall become, off it's gonna become this cauliflowered mess of pustules and yeah <laughs> you're you're gonna have sex and you're gonna die you're gonna have sex and your dick's gonna fall off you're gonna have sex and you're gonna have a baby like you know it's always like this threatening bad stigmatized thing you know i think that's more what the movie's dealing with is this entity is just that mistake you make and that thing that's going to catch up to you and i think it's just playing more on that than anything else at least that's my interpretation but overall like this movie's incredibly atmospheric i think it's very very like well put together and made besides the issue of again some of the like set decorating choices and the attempts to put the movie out of time um, I don't think it's incredibly successful with that, and it often draws your attention out of the movie, where I think if they had ignored a lot of that and maybe just did not include a lot of the technology on purpose, it would have it would have made that work better. And it, I think it would have kept you immersed in the movie a little bit better as well. But beyond that, you know, the, the cinematography's great. Um, the soundtrack, again, is amazing. Um, I really do dig the soundtrack. Um, and I honestly think all the performances are actually pretty solid. Um, and we're starting to see more and more of these young people, you know, show up in other projects. So it's good that this was kind of a jumping off point for a lot of them. I thought this movie had a lot to say, um, specifically because kind of a lot of what you touched on. I went to a Catholic high school. I went to a Catholic grammar school. The sex education for a lot of those grades was very much like abstinence is the only birth control, basically not at all what we needed to hear. Now, granted, I will have to give credit to my high school, the teacher, at least the teacher who taught us sex ed in, I believe, ninth or 10th grade. They did start it off by saying uh, abstinence is the only way you don't have to worry about any of this. However, I know y'all are all teenage boys. So let's just also kind of talk about the proper use of a condom and this and that. So they, I, I will have to give them credit, like at, at least when I was in high school, they went more into the practical elements of birth control. But as someone who grew up as a Catholic, kind of surrounded by specifically the anti-sex or premarital sex kind of attitude, I thought this movie really clicked for me. I One of the things I do have to agree with the director on is it is 
I think it does touch on the themes of kind of the idea of sex being the scary thing at first, especially like when you're first starting to do it and you have no knowledge. And like you've mentioned Mansfield where there's really no support for it, especially if something goes wrong. But then you also have to kind of open yourself up to it as a mature adult. If you are sexually active and want to be sexually active, you have to take that leap. You have to deal with the dangers to do that. And I think the movie touches on that a little bit. But then I think mostly it touches on, like you were saying, the stigma of premarital sex and specifically in American culture, specifically in religious cultures in America. I, I think that that's exactly what this movie shows. What the do- director said, all the elements of death and all that, I understand that. I get it. But just the fact that it, it focused so much on this entity that is just so tied towards sexuality, it, I think there's more to it than just that. Like you were saying, I don't think whether or not the entity is alive or chasing at the end, I don't think that matters. What the entity is, I don't think doesn't matter whether it's a ghost or a demon or just something else. I don't think any of that matters. It's weird because like a part of me has a curiosity of like, but how did this curse get started? But then uh, the other part of me is like, no, if they kept making movies like and made it a franchise, it would just turn into just a fucking terrible thing. Yeah, I, you know, I haven't thought about that until now. Now that I'm thinking about it, you mentioned it, I haven't read anything about them trying to make a sequel or follow up. Like I know the directors moved on to other things, but dear Lord, I hope they like don't try to sequelize this and turn this into a franchise like this works top to bottom as its own thing i would agree it 100 percent does not need any kind of continuation i like that it leaves a lot of the stuff around the entity ambiguous it needs to yeah do not make any more to expand on this so not to burst your fucking bubble but i think like a year or two ago the director did say he's tempted to make another movie that's a sequel to it follows and either has jay or someone else kind of try and find out more of the origins of the entity which that's the exact opposite thing i want yep. to do now nah, don't don't go there just just let it be but yeah no otherwise i think as a standalone movie specifically it, it has a lot to say it is a little bit up its own ass at some points. Um, oh, yeah. Like, and you're going to find that with most, if not all, like art house type horror movies. They're all a little bit up their own ass. But this one is not obnoxious about it. Like I said, it's little things that bother us, like the TVs and the technology. But otherwise, the story is, is well shown and well told. The characters, even if I don't like them, are believable. Like I had mentioned earlier... These are totally people I was friends with or am still friends with. I was probably a little bit of all these characters at one point myself. It was well acted, well written, and atmospheric. It was just those little things that took me out of the movie, but otherwise it's a solid, solid watch. And again, I dodged another bullet of this one not being so bad that I had like nightmares for a week or two, so that's good. Hopefully, as we progress in this podcast, you'll continue to kind of realize, like, oh, yeah, this isn't that bad, and you'll get to the point where you kind of enjoy it. Um, And that's honestly, like, me as a longtime horror fan, that's what I want, is just more people to experience the thing that I love and give it a try and kind of realize, like, oh, yeah, this isn't that bad, or maybe, like, face their fears a little bit. Because as we mentioned in the first episode, horror in general is just a good pressure release valve. And it's a good, safe way for you to kind of live out your fears and deal with your own personal anxieties and, you know, hopefully move past them all said and done. All that being said, uh, to close out the episode, if you were to be stuck with the entity, what is your 
it follows plan. Knee jerk reaction would be like, oh, obviously I'm going to just pass it on and, and just keep passing it on. But then I think I just couldn't picture like, cause at that point it's almost like you're, you're complying in a murder. And so I think that part of my conscious would always be you're, if you do this, you're condemning this person to death. So I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, cause then the, my only two options are the, the only two things I could see myself doing are just letting the entity take me at that point. Just fuck it. Kill me. But then you condemn whoever was ahead of you or behind you to die or I would just continually just road trip around the world like thousands and thousands of miles and every like try and time it. That's pretty much what my plan is. Just houseboat. Yeah. And I would like I, I would like move from one side of the country to the other time it to see when the entity arrives and see like how much time I have like on certain distances before it arrives and maybe do something like that. Or like you were saying houseboat and just let the boat drift endlessly on the ocean. So like you're always moving and the entity is always just kind of walking after you. But if, if you're in the ocean, does the entity just swim after you or does it turn into a sea monster? Like, what do you think it would do at that point? I mean, we saw it in the pool sequence. It clearly just kind of, you know, once it got shot and it fell in the pool, it was still underwater in the pool, but it didn't really seem to be like swimming or moving necessarily. I don't know. But then it clearly somehow gets back out again. The entity never is shown getting in the water on its own, under its own power. Like when it's shot, it, it collapses into the water so then there's that like does the ent- is the entity will just wait on the shoreline for you forever houseboat that's that's my plan houseboat yeah. and just keep bouncing from like place to place i mean hell you could hop on a houseboat and go in the gulf and just outrun whatever hurricane comes by and you could just stop off at pensacola and resupply and then bounce over to louisiana and just keep going texas yep. Mexico, just keep driving around. You're good. And just masturbation for the rest of your life. (laughs) Yep. That's going to wrap it up. Uh, This was a fun conversation about It Follows from 2014. Um, We are going to be doing another classic for the next episode. Um, So stick around for that. We want to give a big shout out to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for recording our opening music and closing music. Uh, definitely give his stuff a listen over at uh, Bandcamp. You can find him under Partygator. Um, so big props to him for getting that set up for us. You've been listening to Watch If You Dare. I am Aaron Mansfield, and with me always is Derek Day One Smith. Check out our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. Download future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. From there, I think that's going to wrap it up. So have a good week, and we will spoop you later. Stay spoopy. Spoopy doopy.